Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. This is where I help strong, capable women excavate the inner garbage in their life so they can become more confident and have more clarity on who they are and how they really want to be in the world. We have rich, juicy conversations about, yeah, you guessed it, empowerment, but also about radiating your brilliance and loving yourself more than you ever have in your life. And who doesn't want that? So join me now for another Empowering Chat. Welcome to Empowering Chats with Susan Burrell. And under the annual theme of Be Expansive is for the month of August, society. It's it's a, it's a crazy ride, you guys. Just just hang in, hang in there. Um, definitely, definitely listen to all the shows. I'm just I'm just tickled. I'm tickled. So, society, a definition or two is an organized group of persons associated together for religious, benevolent, cultural, scientific, political, patriarchal. Patriarchal, geez, that's not the word, patriotic or other purposes. Another definition, a body of individuals living as members of a community. So we're having these conversations now. I I, I love it. I can't wait to see what unfolds. So I just want to say enjoy the shows. So Susan Burrell here. Welcome to another empowering chat. And I'm really excited and privileged to have this author on again. I'm loving when I get to revisit authors and their latest and greatest work. So I want to welcome Connie Zweig. Connie, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Susan. Okay, so the you, the previous book, we, I think we talked about it uh, last year, so everybody you can get the, you can go online and listen to that uh, podcast. The previous book was called Inner Work of Age. And um, and I was telling Connie before we started, I still have that on my bookshelf and I reference it often because of I'm of a certain age and my dad is of a certain age. And it's actually there's um, practices that Connie has in that book that is very helpful for um, for those of us that are in that place and time of in life. Midlife and beyond. In midlife and beyond. So this current book is actually an iteration, right? It's a, it's a, it, you revised it a few times and it's called meeting the shadow on the spiritual path, the dance of darkness and light in search for awakening. Now, now Connie, that's kind of a highfalutin title in a way, <laughs> right? Meeting the shadow on the spiritual path. So let's talk about this. There's lots of juicy um, things in this book. First of all, I want everybody to know Connie did her research. I was so thrilled and happy to be reminded of different um, esoteric wisdoms and traditional wisdoms and philosophies. And she's got it chock full of that. Um, But this particular idea of meeting the shadow on the spiritual side, what, what caused you to write about that? First of all, what is it? And then what caused you to write? About? Yeah. So um, when I was 19, I was in school at Berkeley and I saw a young man I was attracted to and started chatting with him. 
And he would not go out with me unless I started TM, Transcendental Meditation. So I learned how to meditate at 19 for no holy reason. (laughs) And um, found that my anger began to dissipate. I was very politically active, and it was really driven by a lot of anger and projection at the time. And I learned how to quiet my mind and deeply relax. And um, this kind of changed my direction, Susan. I went off and became a TM teacher and did a lot of meditating, as so many baby boomers did in those days. Um, This was in the early 70s. And um, so I was in the TM movement for about 10 years. And what started to happen at the end of that time was there was, uh, I was observing hypocrisy. The teacher was um, saying that he was celibate, but he was not. He was telling us to be celibate at the same time. And as he began to give out different practices through the years, There was lying, there was competition, there was hypocrisy. The movement became more hierarchical and more rigid, and everything cost more money. And so I um, began to feel discouraged and disillusioned, and I decided to leave the TM movement in 1979. And I lost all my friends. No one would speak to me after that. Um, I returned to my hometown really without a career direction because I had um, kind of suspended a lot of issues, career ambition and relational issues and so forth to teach meditation. Mm -hmm. So um, I recognized that a lot of people had been through that. And in some cases, people had experienced this kind of covert coercion like I had. And in some cases, people experienced much more overt Mm -hmm. religious and spiritual abuse, whether by their clergy or their shaman or their rabbi or their roshi uh, or their swami. Yeah, there's. I have witnessed hypocrisy in the spiritual circles that I work and travel in. And, and nothing gets my gander up more. And, oh my God, I'm going to say this, Connie. Most often the hypocrisy and the crossing the lines has been, and I don't mean to diss men, but it has been mostly men because, like you mentioned earlier, it becomes a, a patriarchal hierarchy and and so if you're following a guru or a minister, you know, he's daddy dearest, right? He's just so wonderful. And it just is frightening to me when people um, get get kind of brainwashed by these charismatic people that are able that, that at the beginning, they must really believe what they're teaching, right? Yeah, I think, you know, um, there there are a lot of topics to respond to in your comment there. Um, So there's a reason that most clergy are men, 
um, because of the patriarchal systems that are set up around religion and spirituality. But there are also women who abuse their power. Yes. And, you know, in, in similar and different ways. Um, and so it isn't a male versus female issue. However, the majority of the cases I studied, chapter five of the book is about dozens and dozens of anecdotes um, from people's memoirs and from interviews and from um, public records of teachers who have acted out their shadows and really harmed, abused their students. And you can see from that chapter that most of them are men with female students. Yes. So, I, Connie, I have the first sentence in that chapter I underlined a couple times. Can I read it? Um, so you say, sadly but frequently, the longing for the light evokes its opposite, a shattering encounter with spiritual darkness and emptying out of hope, meaning, and long-held images of God. Our suffering hollows us out, tears tears at veils of spiritual personas, smashes religious idols, and ultimately leaves us bereft. That's meeting. I, I, I totally got that when I read that. I was like, yes. Okay. Because you're meeting the shadow. So you're meeting, you're having an encounter with someone you've idealized mm -hmm. and made, you know, imagined is perfect or self-realized human being. And you're meeting a part of them that's destructive. And regardless of the sacred arena, which is supposed to um, keep us safe from harm, we are being harmed as students. Now, you know, this doesn't only, the shadow is in everyone. So yes. students are bringing their own shadows to this sacred relationship dynamic. They're bringing denial and defenses and projection and um, fantasies and childhood needs, needs for the perfect parent, needs for unconditional love and approval, needs for belonging. And so all of that is mostly in the shadow for most people. And they're imagining consciously that they will get those childhood needs met that weren't met in their families. But what happens is if the teacher, and the teacher could be awake, could right. be in advanced stages of consciousness. This doesn't mean that they're not awake. However, they're not emotionally developed or morally developed. If they came from Asia, they lived in a monastery, they may be sexist. They may be unfamiliar with the ways of the West. And so then when they see women who have a lot of self-expression, who a lot of sexual expression, who dress scantily, who, um, you know, are, are so unlike anything they've encountered before, that that teacher is meeting his own shadow issues in the students. And so this is going both directions. In, in psychology, we talk about projection, mm -hmm. and that means unconsciously attributing denied or forbidden parts of ourselves to somebody else. 
So we might say, oh, you know, he sh she's so lazy and in denial of her own laziness. Or he's so wise and compassionate in denial of our own wisdom and compassion. Mm -hmm. But he's so enlightened and we're not. And so we are attributing unconsciously to this other person um, a kind of perfection that we're denying in ourselves or awakening or enlightenment or whatever we call it. And in some cases, the projection fits. The person really is in an advanced level of consciousness. However, if that person has not done emotional inner work or moral development, they still have shadow material. Mm -hmm. Shadow material is lodged in the whole body-mind as well as in the subtle body, in the chakras. So if there is some kind of shadow material that gets triggered in a relationship or in a community and it gets acted out, then, as like the section that you just read, the believer goes into shock. Mm-hmm and despair, often post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if they speak up, the teacher denies it and the community denies it. So there are examples where this, the, the whistleblower is banished because the community can't take in that information. There's too much groupthink and denial about what's going on and, and willful blindness about what's going on. So it's very hard to speak up for others and also to act in your own behalf in some of these situations. There are several examples in the book of communities that have really redesigned the systems that were colluding with the abuse. And oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two examples of communities, Kripaling Yoga Center um, in Massachusetts, I think it's now in New York, and LA Zen Center, that were able to really take apart the systems that were supporting um, sexual abuse by the teachers in both the situations and redesign things, level the hierarchies, do some shadow work open the communication, and things were able to change. But this is rare. In most cases, like, say, the Catholic Church, we just see the institutions that are kind of built by the society, which enables um, secret-keeping and sexism and abuse of power, right? It enables these things, and so these systems just get reinforced, and sometimes the teacher is banished, but generally nothing happens. And there's only, and there are very few cases of legal action. Many of the teachers leave the country and go teach somewhere else. Oh, so, dear. for example, Shambhala in Boulder, mm -hmm. which was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, Tibetan Buddhist, mm -hmm. he was an alcoholic. He sexually assaulted people. Um, the whole thing was spiritually rationalized. They called it crazy wisdom. People knew about it because he was open, but they had all these ways of rationalizing it. And after he died of alcoholism, people said he wasn't an alcoholic. And then the person he left 
as his heir, also sexually abused people. And even when he knew he was HIV positive. Oh, God. Yes. He gave AIDS to some of his students. And then the next generation, who was the son of the original teacher, continued to do that and has now left the country. No legal consequences is teaching in India or Nepal. So often this is um, done with impunity. Uh-huh. Um, there was a recent, you may have seen The Vow on HBO. No, I haven't yet. Ah, it was. it's about a kind of cult-like organization called Nixium, where clearly people were learning and having beautiful experiences, but it became extremely abusive. And the teacher was having sex with lots of women and underage women. And that's the only case that I know about where he went to prison. So, Connie, this I'm shaking my head. I'm doing the bobblehead thing, you know, that you see on a dashboard somewhere. Uh, because uh, the, the idea that these people... Okay, we, God, I got about five different things I want to ask you, because first of all, it's it it it's taught, it's behavior that's taught and therefore modeled. So the 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 following teachers think it's okay to be like that. Yeah, yeah, in with generational. Yeah, right. And 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 I want to talk about the generational abuse. Um generational everybody like going back centuries in some of these kind of religious organizations and and because like you said there's a secret there's a there's a collusion there's an agreement that we're going to keep the secret because we are just low-level little peons and because they wear those big fancy things and yeah, you know, so, I got to tell you, I I've never been in an organized religion. I was not brought up Christian. I went to church with friends, but and every time, so my shoulders went up every time there was something I intuitively knew stuck. Was well, everyone I interviewed had that intuition and dismissed it? Oh my gosh. Their bodies knew there was danger and they dismissed it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about why that is. There is yes, let's. Long, there's this longing. I call it holy longing. It's a spiritual yearning in us for something greater, for something beyond ego. Today we call it non-duality, but we used to call it transcendence or enlightenment, or, you know, communing with the divine, or discovering our Christ nature, or our Buddha nature, or spirit, whatever we call it, doesn't matter to me. But that universal longing leads us to teachers and communities, because we want to find practices that will give us that experience. And this is really valid it's really universal. It's a part of our, I believe it's a part of our nature as human beings. You know, yes. the poets write about it as the soul's call to the beloved. So, 
So at some level, that's what's going on. But what happens then is we project that onto an all-too-human man or woman who has a shadow. And a community that, as you said, is keeping secrets. Why? Because there's a persona, just like each individual has a persona that we present to the world. And families have personas and family, abusive families, alcoholic families keep secrets, right? We don't want the neighbors to know. And these communities have personas because they want more people to join to meditate, to pray, whatever it is. So, you know, people get caught in these systems and it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're doing something wrong. Sometimes these teachers transmit um, powerful, timeless wisdom, transcendent experiences, right? But why might they act out in these destructive ways? I mean, that was kind of the question that I was trying to explore and to use psychology to understand that. So I, I'm having a, a, a Tourette's moment because I just want to say Scientology because it's kind of, that's, a, that's an excellent example of where there are pieces that are ancient wisdom truths being taught so, okay, so why, Connie, why does the psychology or the, the psyche of the humans, why are we drawn to that uh, thing that is not true? Well, you know, I Scientology for me is more cult-like than most of the groups that I um, yeah. wrote about. It's, you know, and then that is not to say that it doesn't hold some part of the truth, like you said. A lot of these uh, uh, people, gurus, teachers, that are actually a lot of them that have been paid big bucks through the 70s and 80s, um, there is kernels of truth, which then the, the individual human goes, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that resonates with me. Oh, I, my heart opened. And they get drawn in. But then there's the whole other thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up money. So financial coercion is another way that the shadow shows up. So it starts out with small tithing, and then he wants a part of your income, and then he wants your estate when your parents died. Right. And then he's driving Rolls Royces and flying private planes, right? So you kind of watch the growth of the financial coercion And that's a serious red flag. So why is it that people can't leave when they see that? Okay, why, Connie? Tell us why. So there's an emotional investment in in these relationships. This is a sacred relationship. Many of the people I interviewed said, I don't want this to be true. It can't be true because I can't get enlightened without him. Oh, boy. Or I have no career. I gave up everything to serve this community. Where would I go? I have no, I'm alone without them. And so there's tremendous emotional and there's also intellectual investment. I want to believe these teachings because otherwise I can't live with so much uncertainty. Right. 
I can't live with not knowing what life is really about. And so, so they lose, yeah. So so then they lose themselves. But so then Connie, and you've got some of that, you talk about it in your book, um, about that that you once you are able to recognize that that individual who's your guru or you know that's for lack of a better descriptor um teacher uh isn't necessarily got it all going on going within yourself at least in my personal experience and 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 what i practice go and this goes back to meditation but in a deeper way going within yourself the, all the answers are right there and your connection to spirit source god whatever higher thing you you want to say is all within us already because it was implanted before we were even born because we were one with it it whatever before we came in yes and when we took on the body we took on the development of the ego yeah. And the ego is identified with the body and it's identified with the mind. And as the ego develops, I think part of what ha what happens with the teachers who um, think they've transcended the ego, many of them, but what happens is they're carrying the projections that I spoke about of many people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. In India, they carry the projections of millions of people. Wow. Right? What is that like? They're only seen through the screen of projection. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't have peer support. They have no one to talk to about their human needs or their own doubts or their own failings. And so, you know, there's a two-way, There, this is a reciprocal situation where the the teachers in that position then their egos begin to become inflated if they had narcissistic tendencies which i after studying them i think many of them do mm -hmm. then they begin to feel they're immune to consequences they can get away with anything if they have sociopathic tendencies which some of them do then they don't have a conscience they can find a spiritual teaching like, I'm enlightened, so anything I do is not me. You know, it's spirit coming through me. It's spontaneous, so it's not me. It's just consciousness. So they can sexually assault someone, and they can tell people, this is for her evolution. She, I'll awaken her kundalini, and she'll be enlightened through this. And so this is ego inflation in the teachers, and it's um, it's really dangerous because there are no safeguards in these communities. There are no built-in, some communities like insight meditation, um, some Buddhist communities have moral precepts. Yoga communities have the yamas and niyamas if they study them. But right. in many cases, they're dismissed. They're not... They're not embodied because moral development is not included in um, in the teachings in the in the trainings. So that's so funny to me because um, you know 
when I was growing up, you, you know, my grandmother, well, you need to go to church so you can have values and morals and blah, 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 blah. You know, of course, she was telling me this after I decided to move in and live with a man. That was pretty bad for my Buddhist, I mean, my Baptist grandma. But but moral development is 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 really kind of, I would think, the foundation a lot of a lot of these spiritual philosophies. Because, well, you know, there's a difference between traditional religion, like mm-hmm. Christianity, the way it's taught in churches, which teaches a certain conventional morality, right? It's very conventional. And a lot of these communities that are more mystical or rooted, not rooted in conventional social institutions. And so they're very, they're functioning very independent of society. Actually, many of the ones I wrote about were physically isolated from society. They would go off to an island or they would go take people off to India where there was no possible way to track them. One of them is in Portugal. So they're, you know, um, they're, it's not like traditional religion. Traditional religion has its own shadow issues that, right? We can have another conversation about that. But I'm talking more about, um, the folk, the people who look at Christian mysticism or Jewish mysticism and those streams, mm-hmm. or Islam, Islam, the mysticism is Sufism, um, Vedanta in India, or the Kundalini communities. Um, I wrote about Yogi Bhajan, who was just. I mean, it's unbelievable the kinds of things that went on in that Kundalini community. Um, Or the Roshis who run the Zen centers or the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries that have moved over to the West. There's a young Tibetan Buddhist teacher who just uh, came out on YouTube and said that all of the boys in the monasteries over there are being molested. Oh, God. So what does that tell us about when they come here? You know, they're told how special they are. They're born into the lineage. They get lifelong training. They come to the West. What does that tell us about their own trauma? It's untreated and unneglected. And then it goes, so again, it goes up the lineage line for right. centuries. The, right. The, the, That's why this behavior, yeah, this behavior right. is okay. This is, and, and, I wanted to talk a little bit about how it affects society, all societies, humanity, uh, because these are these like you're talking about, they're they're hidden unless there's somebody like this uh, young Buddhist monk you just mentioned, who is the whistleblower who comes out and says, hey, this is going on in this small community. And, you know, and then unfortunately, a lot of people go, oh, well, it's just in that community. It's not in my community. Right. All the defenses come up. Right. Because it could, because, oh, Connie, do the defenses come up because there is an inner knowing within the individual that knows that that's true in their community? Well, I think in some people who are aware that they're holding a secret, there's this action to protect it. Mm -hmm. You know, kids who grow up in alcoholic families learn this behavior. 
they don't necessarily call the police or tell the teacher at school that this is good that there's alcohol and abuse physical or emotional abuse right they learn that behavior and then they bring it to their spiritual community mhm wow or to the church right and so they they don't know how to speak out and i think that one of the great gifts of the me too movement is that we we learned how to become a whistleblower and how society could protect women rather than villainize women because it used to be that the women were blamed and in hollywood the women were blamed and lost their careers right right and in the workplace and so now there's a different awareness of this dynamic and it's not and it's not always black and white there's a lot of nuance going on for example there are male teachers and female students who get married uh-huh so what does that tell us what does that tell us that there was consent is consent possible with that kind of power dynamic where you feel that your spiritual well-being is in the hands of this person your your enlightenment or your capacity to go to heaven or your salvation is in the hands of this intermediary and yet you marry him you know wow. what is the power dynamic in those marriages so the whole issue of consent is very nuanced now we have a deeper understanding of it and i think that that's in part from the me too movement I, I would agree with you, and I think that there's a we've still got a long way to go. Um, even though those women are stood up and are still standing up, you know, other women are standing up and moving forward and saying this happened to me or we have to stop this. But that, but I do kind of feel like it's a bit, it's a small ripple right now, Connie. It's not necessarily a tidal wave of change. Absolutely, it's like a ripple of change, and so. So I'm just going to speak to anybody who's listening. If you have been or are involved in what Connie and I have been talking about, whether it's in a spiritual community or at your workplace or whatever, there there's ways that you can stand up and be safe and be safe and not vilified. And you can then be part of a bigger ripple of change that are human human race humanity needs because yeah as a time you know, i recently spoke with a lawyer who is representing um a lot of women in cases of religious abuse mm. and she said one of the most important things that communities need to do is put in in into the system um a grievance part of the organization where you can take information safely, as you said, about something that's going on that is harming you or worrying you, something you observed or that's happening to you. How can organizations, and this is a social issue because it's really global, but I mean, in the States, there are so many communities that don't have this set up. Mm -hmm. Churches where you know ministers are out of control in fin with financial abuse, <clears throat> with emotional or sexual abuse, you know. Um, and if they had something 
it's something systemic, something operational, where people could come and report their experience and know that it would be acted on, that would be a tremendous change. It would be. It would be. And I'm going to just uh, send light to that idea into other communities. I, I'm part of a community that has something like that in place, but it still takes a lot of guts. Right. Oh, yes. Especially if the leader is 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 well-loved. Oh, yeah. In the community. That, yeah. You know. So that's what the second half of the book is about. I call it spiritual shadow work. It's how to cultivate shadow awareness, your own unconscious impulses and needs and desires that you're bringing to the situation, and the teacher's unconscious needs and desires and red flags. How do you cultivate awareness of that? So and wait, I have a, I have a question, Connie. Col when you say cultivate awareness, are you talking about the in the the shadow work that you're that you put into this book? Is it in within the individual, or do they then go to their teacher and say we need to do shadow work together? Well, I'm talking about individually, uh -huh. personal shadow work. It has to start there, allowing ourselves to see to look at a blind spot, allowing ourselves to reflect on our denial. Allowing ourselves to so, to reflect on what ch unmet childhood needs am I bringing to this situation? What am I projecting onto the teacher that I'm losing inside of myself? Mm. And so if you're projecting the light of consciousness onto someone else, you're not owning it in yourself. Mm -hmm. If you're projecting um, your certainty, your beliefs, that somebody else knows more. You're not allowing your own doubts and uncertainty to surface. If you're projecting your um, emotional needs onto someone else, he's, he'll take care of me. I can rely on him. Um, I'll always be safe and loved. Then you're not taking responsibility for your own authentic feelings. You might be burying your anger in the shadow or your sorrow in the shadow, right? You just described my 28-year marriage, Connie. <laughs> okay. But yes, it's, it's a relationship, relationship dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then if all that is going on, Susan, you lose your agency, your capacity to act on your own behalf or someone else's behalf. I mean, I told the story of a woman who was just kind of frozen in place in a very abusive situation until someone outside the community said to her, this is abuse. And she said, oh my God, she hadn't let herself have that thought. Oh my God. And then she could see it. Right. And if this person was anybody other than your spiritual teacher, would you accept that behavior? Of course not. Right? Right. So we lose our agency when we give away all these parts of the self. And so part of the motivation for my book was to guide people how to reclaim all these parts of the self. I love and that. And then choose consciously. Do you want to stay 
in this community, that might be your choice. You might decide to stay and try to change it or try to accept it, or you might be ready to leave and separate and individuate, Mm -hmm. as we say in psychology, separate individuation. And that's a very, you know, confusing and painful moment. So for that reason, I've been organizing groups of people who want to go through the book together and do these practices in community and support each other to make good choices around this. I love that. And so, Connie, if people want to join your groups, how do they get how do they get to you? So the groups are free. They're online and they're organized by time zone. And so if you send me an email, Connie at gmail.com, I'll connect you with other people in your time zone to do this work together and, and build community around it. I think that that would be, well, I'm a big, like when I have an issue, I create a support group for myself. I think it's so um, helpful to have a group so that people can take care of you when you are falling apart and you can witness and support others as they're going through their growth. Yes. So important to have. Yes. And deeply listen. It's Mm -hmm. not therapy. No one's fixing anyone. It's really community support. Well, and also just as a last piece, Connie, when when people have gone through this kind of um, abuse or trauma, um, mostly those individuals just want to be heard because they weren't heard before. Right. They were ignored or poo-pooed. They were silenced. Right. Dismissed. Right. So, um, and your website is ConnieZweig.com? That's right. Okay. People can find webinars there. There are interviews posted, podcasts posted. Yeah. And a lot of books, everybody, because this woman has written quite a bit. But this book we've been talking about is Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path. Connie, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm tearing up. This is ridiculous. Uh, I am so grateful for the work that you have been doing all your life and your commitment to um, research and uncovering truth. I'm so grateful. That, and everybody, this book really has uh, so much in it, especially at the toward the end, toward the back, where she's got her um, exercises and things like that. Connie Zweig, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. Again. You're welcome. Really, really feel gratitude to you. Oh, thank you. you. I I love it when it circles like that. So I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our empowering chat today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, go to susanborell.com. You can see all the information about my new book, Live an Empowered Life, A 30-Day Journey. You can also access guided meditations that I have on Insight Timer through the website. And just see what else is out there on my site that you might find empowering and exciting to experience. You can also contact me through the website at Susan at SusanMorell.com. That's it for today. See you next time.